I would invite you to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. What time do you guys usually get out? About 8 o'clock or so? Um, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start reading in verse number 12, and we'll read through verse 14. And the Bible reads this way, Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. Once again, Lord, we thank you for all those that have come tonight. And Lord, we pray for this body, this promised land body, Lord, that you bless her, that you have her become the shining light that you so want her to be. And we also pray for Brother Josh as he labors here, and may there be fruit, much fruit for the labors here, Lord. We ask you to guide and direct our life. We ask that you bless the preaching of your word tonight and may it accomplish what you have set it out to accomplish and it return, not return unto you void. Lord, we just ask your protection and forgive us the forgiveness of our sin. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. I wanted to focus on a word here this evening in verse number 14. And the word I want to focus on for a moment is the word redemption. The word redemption here just means this. You have been bought. You have been purchased. And that purchase price is the blood of Jesus. And it had to be the blood of Jesus. So can we just preach on, uh, for, on the blood for a little while tonight? It is a very serious topic, but it is the topic. Because everywhere through the scriptures there's a theme. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 and 21, there's a thread. And there's a theme in every book, in every chapter, in every verse. And the theme is this, the blood of Jesus. The book is about Christ. The whole book is about Christ. You know, we can, we can talk about uh, this narrative or that topic or, or whatever you want to discuss in Scripture. There's many things that we can talk about in Scripture. But if we miss the main theme, if we miss the thread of Scripture, we've missed it all. We have to talk about the blood. Otherwise, we're all doomed for hell if we don't have the blood. The purchase price for your soul is blood. So let's start with that. The blood of Jesus. It couldn't have been mine. It couldn't have been yours. You know, we, we talk about, well, it should have been me on that cross. He, he paid my sin debt, which is very true. But if it was me on the cross, would that have been sufficient to purchase my own soul? No, it wouldn't have been. So it's kind of, a, kind of a moot point, right? He did pay for my sin, but it couldn't have been my blood. If I was to die on my, on my own behalf, it wouldn't have been sufficient. It had to be the blood of Christ. I believe this. I believe the blood started in the garden. You know, we talk about him shedding 
His blood on the cross at Calvary, which is that very true. But the blood didn't start on the cross. The blood started in the garden. When Jesus went to pray and he asked his apostles, uh, the three apostles, <clears throat> you wait right here while I go pray. And what they do. I mean, this is a very serious matter here. Very serious time. And what did they do? They fell asleep. Yeah, and you know how when you were a kid and your mom woke you up for school in the morning, she would go, time to get up. You know, wake up, time to get up. You know, when, what did Jesus do when he came back and saw his apostles sleeping? You know, it wasn't, Peter, John, wake up. No, I think he did this. Get up. <laughs> wake up. Can't you watch with me for one hour? But as he's praying, the stress level in his life was so hard. Because imagine for a moment, the thought pattern of Christ in the garden. He's praying to the Heavenly Father because Him knowing within hours, not wondering how He was going to die, but knowing how He was going to die. And it is medically possible for blood vessels to break under the skin and then come out and mix through the sweat glands and drop to the ground. Because the Bible says that his sweat was as drops of blood. It is medically possible for blood to mix with sweat and fall to the ground. So the blood started in the garden. But then he was taken. He was arrested and, and stood before uh, magistrates with false accusers. And then taken before Pilate. And Pilate said this, I take him and scourge him. I find no fault in him. But then the crowd began to cry out a couple of words. And what were those words? Crucify him. So yeah, they did take him and scourge him. But you know what a scourging is? I, I would now... My dad, I used to be a, a, a rotten little kid. I was a rotten little kid. Uh, just ask my dad. He whipped me many, many times. <laughs> and I remember getting whipped with a belt from neck to ankles. And writhing on the, on the floor in pain. And mom would yell out, don't you think that's enough? <laughs> to my dad. And I remember getting a belt and... But I promise you, I do not want a scourging. A scourge is when they take the cat of nine tails and they put shards of glass on the end or sharpened rocks and then come across the back or legs or stomach or wherever it lands. And when they come across your back and pull it, it actually rips the skin open. Muscles and everything. Matter of fact, it... In, in Scripture, the connotation is this that, this, that the body was turned inside out. So imagine the pain. And imagine the blood. Now, in the human body, there's only 1.2 gallons of blood, give or take. And it only takes one to two liters of blood loss for a person to start feeling faint. 
So I just wonder when the scourging is done, how much blood loss there already was. He hasn't even been to the cross yet. But see, when they got done with the scourging, they tore his clothes off of him, which opened the wounds once again, which caused more blood loss. And then they put the purple robe on him. And then they put the crown of thorns on his head. Now imagine this, the, the scalp of the head, the scalp of the body, is the most vascular part of the body. Now imagine those thorns coming all the way through the scalp. How much blood there was running down his face and over his body. We can't, we can't even fathom how much blood there was. Matter of fact, you get down to the point I believe the Bible teaches this, that when Christ was hanging on the cross, He wasn't even recognizable. But then, after they put the purple robe on Him and the crown of thorns, and they beat Him some more, and then and pulled out His beard, and then they tore that off of Him, which opened the wounds even more, and then they put the, the cross on His shoulder and made Him carry it. Up the Via Della Rosa. He didn't get very far. And he collapsed. I wonder why he collapsed. You think it could have been the one to two liters of blood loss already out of his body? Probably. Then they called Simon of Cyrene out of the crowd to come and carry the cross the rest of the way. And then they get to Golgotha's hill. They get to Calvary. And they nailed him to the cross. And placed it in the stand. And there suspended between God and man is our Lord. Our Savior. The one who did shed his blood to save our soul. You know, there was a point when Jesus was on trial and he stood before Pilate. And the Bible says that he opened not his mouth. In, this, in Isaiah it says that he was dumb as a lamb before his shearer. And so we see him closing his mouth. And then we don't see him opening his mouth until he got on the cross. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wonder how much time lapsed from the time he shut his mouth till the time he opened his mouth on the cross. I'd say there's quite a bit of time there. I've got to thinking about something. I wonder from the time he closed it to the time he opened it, what was he thinking about? What was going through the mind of Christ in that time? I have a theory. I believe he was thinking about you. I believe he was picturing our faces in his head. Matter of fact, he knew your name. And from the time he closed his mouth to the time he opened it, here's what I think. Every person that has ever lived and every person that will ever live that has opportunity to accept him as their personal Savior, his, his, their faces and their names scrolled through his mind. Because why else was he doing that? For who else was he doing it for 
He was doing it for you. I think he was thinking about us. He wasn't complaining in his head. He wasn't accusing the father of turning his back on him at that point. He was thinking about us. All around the world. He was shedding his blood for you and me. I also believe this. Based on Old Testament sacrifices. When Joseph of Arimathea begged for the body of Christ and they gave it to him and he and others took him down off the cross. I believe at that point he had shed every ounce of blood out of his body for you and for me. He ensanguinated himself for the cause of our salvation. Because the Bible says life is in the blood. And if he had no blood left, he had no life left. He, he gave it all for us. He gave it all. Isn't that the message this world needs? Isn't that the cure for everything? Isn't our country going nuts today? They're going crazy over things that don't matter. The only thing that matters in this life is do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? A hundred years from now, when we're in heaven, the only thing that will matter is did I know Jesus? All this other stuff is null and void. The message that people need today is the blood of Christ. That's it. It's the cure for alcoholism. It's the cure for drug abuse. It's the cure for pornography. It's the cure for spousal abuses. It's a cure for everything in this world. It's the cure for Buddhism. <laughs> it's the cure for Muslimism. That's a word. It's the cure. He's the cure. He's the cure. Aren't we in a battle today? We face our battles every day. But really, who are we fighting against? It's not the people we come in contact with. The Bible says we fight against um, spiritual wickedness in high places. That's who we're fighting against. And really, who is that? It's the devil. We're fighting against the devil spirits of this world. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. So when we lash out at people, we're lashing out at the wrong place. Really, what's their need? The blood. That's the blood. That's the need. But we're in this battle. But here's the thing. <clears throat> the war is already won. We know that, right? So why would we fall into the snares and the traps that Satan has sent to this world when we know what the cure is? Because the war's already won. Let me just share a few thoughts from, uh, a few quotes actually, if you will, from some generals that have ruled 
our military. I'm a veteran. How many veterans we have here tonight? Any veterans? I'm a veteran. And I, and I got some quotes from some generals that have ruled our military. One from Art Buckwald. He said, I don't know whether this is the best of times or the worst of times. But I assure you, it's the only time you've got. Winston Churchill wasn't a general in an army, but he was the ruler of Great Britain during World War II. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with crowning confidence and, and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and on the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Major General Oliver P. Smith said this in Korea, 1950. There can be no retreat when there's no rear. You can't retreat or even withdraw when you're surrounded. The only thing you can do is to break out. And in order to do that, you have to attack. And that is what we're about to do. All we're doing is attacking in a different direction. Then Douglas MacArthur has a couple quotes. first one has some biblical emphasis to it. He said, For those to whom much is given, much is required. It is not whether you get knocked down, it's whether you get up. There is no substitute for victory. And then one of my favorites, he said this, The enemy is in front of us. The enemy is behind us. The enemy is to the right, and the enemy is to the left of us. They can't get away this time. Are we surrounded with satanic forces everywhere we go? Do you not pray for your children every day when they go to school? Do you not worry about family members and the Bible says Satan is like a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Don't let him win. Be on our guard. Be on the offensive. Because the only offensive tool we have is God's Word. That's our only offensive weapon in the armor of God. It's His Word. The more we know that, the better we can serve Him. The more ammo we have against our enemy. You know, Satan backs down with the Word of God. We just have to know it. We have to find strength in Him. We have to find strength in His Word. And memorize it. Commit it to memory. Isn't that what David said? By word have I hidden my heart, that I might not sin against thee. The more we know a Scripture, the more ammo we have. And the better we can defend ourselves, and we can lift the name of Christ up where it belongs. Let me just tell you a quick story as we close tonight. Because <clears throat> it's all about the blood. 
1839, two men were sent out by the Scottish Missionary Society. And they were sent out to the South Pacific, to the New Hebrides, which is now Vanuatu. And they went to the island of Aramanga. And upon landing on the island of Aramanga in 1839, they were beaten and killed. And their bodies were eaten. Five minutes after landing on the island. Never had the opportunity to share the blood of Jesus, to share the gospel of Christ with these people. You see, in 1839, the South Pacific... Uh, people of South Pacific were vicious, bloodthirsty cannibals. In 1858, a man by the name of John Patton was sent out by the same Scottish Missionary Society, only he was sent to the island of Tana in the New Hebrides. He wasn't killed. Him and his wife set up a home there on Tana. He went there to preach the gospel, and he preached the blood of Jesus. But every day his house would be surrounded by natives with muskets and clubs ready to kill him. At the moment's notice, all they needed was a word from the chief and they would have killed him. During the time on Tana, his wife and one-month-old son died of malaria. And he literally had to sleep on their graves so the natives wouldn't come and dig them up and eat them. He left the island of Tana in 1864, him saying, I don't know whether there's any converts or not. If he had converts, he might not have known about them. But he preached the gospel there for six years. That would have been tough. Preaching the blood of Jesus for six years, not knowing if you had any converts. He left the island. He went on deputation. He needed a new ministry ship. So we went back to Scotland. He went to Australia. And he got money to build a new ministry ship. And this time he went back to the South Pacific. He went to the island of Anawa, which is just north of Tana, north, just north of Aramanga. And he went and set up a home. He, he's remarried, set up a home, but the same thing was occurring. Every night, every day, his house would be surrounded by natives with muskets and clubs ready to kill him. How'd you like to live like that? Knowing that any moment your life could end. You're there serving God and your life could end. Well, one day John decided because there wasn't much water there on this island that he was going to dig a well. Well, he started digging a well, but the natives would gather around and laugh at him. They were laughing at him for digging a well. And this is what they said. <clears throat> Your God cannot make it rain from under the earth. <laughs> they used the words cannot make it rain from under the earth. Well, John knew he needed water, so he continued digging the well. And he got to about 10 feet. And he um, called it a day, went back the next day. The walls of the well had collapsed in back up to the top. Well, he had an idea that he was going to hire the natives to dig the well for him. So he offered them 
metal fishing hooks because all they had was seashells that were sharpened to catch fish. So we offered them metal hooks and calico fabric so they could make clothes. He said for every bucket of limestone and coral rock and mud and clay and things you, come, you bring out, he said, I'll give you each a fishing hook and some calico. So they did. So they got down to about 20 feet and he ran out of hooks and he ran out of calico. But this time he went and got some sago palm branches and limbs and shored up the walls of the well so that it wouldn't collapse and <clears throat> came back the next day and the walls of the well were still intact. But he had no more. He had no more hooks to pay. So he had to dig the well the rest of the way himself. So he, he gets down there and continues the well. Well, the natives are still gathering around up on top, now laughing at him still. And here's what the chief said. <clears throat> he said, not only that, that you, God can't make it rain from under the earth, he said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to dig a hole <clears throat> all the way through the island, and you're going to fall into the ocean, and the sharks are going to eat you. Well, <clears throat> John knew that wasn't the the truth. He continued to dig the well. So he's at 20 feet, 25 feet, 26 feet, 27, still no water. And he's in this well <clears throat> praying while they're up there laughing at him. Matter of fact, <clears throat> now they won't come close to the edge of the well because they think it's going to fall in. <laughs> but they're still laughing at him. Well, he comes out the next day. He's at about 30 feet comes out the next day with an empty jug. And he showed the natives an empty jug. So he goes back in the well and he's digging just <clears throat> as hard as he can. He's praying, Lord, give us water. But he wasn't sure whether when he finds water, is it going to be fresh water or is it going to be salt water? So he's at 30 feet, 31, 32 feet, still praying, Lord, give us water. Give us water. And at 33 feet, ironically, the same age our Lord was when he was put to death on the cross. He sprung water at 33 feet. So he lets it settle a little bit because he's still unsure whether it's salt water or if it's fresh water. And he dips his jug in there and he tastes it. And he's got fresh water. And he fills up the jug and he takes it back out up to the natives up on top. And he gives them each a drink of water. And they were all astonished. They weren't laughing anymore. And the chief says to John, because the whole time John is digging this well, he's still preaching the gospel to these people. And he hasn't had any converts yet. And he's standing up there giving water to the natives and the chief of the tribe. He said, John, can I speak for you this Sunday? And John said, sure, chief. So the chief gets up there. Even though there's no convert yet, there's still a crowd of people that come and listen to him speak. Well, the chief gets up and he opens the Bible to this verse. When it says this, 
Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, what John was doing really wasn't digging a well in the ground. John was digging a well in my heart. For every time John preached the gospel of Christ, every time he preached the blood of Jesus, another shovelful came out of this deep, dark heart of mine, and the water came out bursting forth. You see, the first convert that John had on the island of Anawa was the chief. And because the chief got saved, so did so many others. The point is this. If the blood of Christ, if the gospel, the precious gospel of Christ can penetrate the heart of a vicious, bloodthirsty cannibal, it can penetrate yours. And it can penetrate anyone's. I'm sure we all know someone who needs Jesus in their life. And maybe you're just the one to share it with them. There's people that you know that Brother Josh could never speak to. There's people that you know where maybe you're the only one in their life that can share Jesus with them. But don't look at it this way in the fact of, oh, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm too nervous to share Jesus with them. I'm... Well, Lord, first ask the Lord to give you strength in that area. But look at it this way. Isn't it, isn't it funny how Jesus can start changing your mind about something? We're always too nervous about sharing the gospel. And it isn't, can be nerve-wracking, especially when you're sharing it with family. But think about it this way. Follow me for a second. Think about it this way. Put yourself in this position. Think about it positively. I get to be the one to share the blood of Jesus with them. I get to be the one. God, use me in that way. You're very serious about what's happening in this world and very serious about Christ in your life. Say this, I get to be the one to share Christ with them. That kind of eliminates all fear, doesn't it? Just put yourself in that position. I get to be the one. Don't you think the Apostle Paul put himself in that position in so many cases? Saying, I get to be the one. God, use me. And when we pray for God to use you, I promise you that you'll be able to accomplish and do things that you never thought you could do. Just pray that prayer. And it doesn't have to be right now. It could be any time. Lord, use me. Because that's what this life is about. If you've truly been purchased by the blood of Christ, you belong to Him. You don't belong to yourself anymore. All we have left is being obedient to the Word of God. To understanding His will for your life. And be sensitive to whatever God has for you in your life.
I promise you, you won't be disappointed if we just offer ourselves to His service. Because that's what our life is about now, is serving Him.